Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 111, week 111, volume 111, number fucking 111. How you going guys? How's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Johnny of Prison, and that will be coming up later in the show. So there's no album of the week, it's been a bit quiet on that front, but we do have a single of the week, and it comes from End. Their new track is called Pariah, and it will feature on the band's upcoming debut album, which is titled Splinters from an Ever-Changing Face. That will be released June 5th through Closed Casket Activities. This track is abrasive, abusive, it's hardcore that beats you around, I love it. I'm addicted to it. I cannot get enough. I am very, very excited about this band and have been for a while. So to hear that they're finally doing their full length, I'm fucking stoked. And I hope you guys are too. The track is called Pariah. The band is called End. The album is called Splinters from an Ever-Changing Face. That sees its release on June 5th. Let's get into questions, feedback, what's been going on. It's pretty quiet at the moment, which is understandable, but I want to take this moment to say if you've got some time this week, help us out with a rating and review. can be done on iTunes podcasts, can be done on our Facebook page. Give us a one, give us a five, whatever you feel like, help us out with a rating and review. The other way you can help us this week if you've got some time is with a share of the podcast. Whether it's the current episode or a previous episode, Help us out, share it around on your social medias. All of this stuff is invaluable to the show growing. We notice it and we appreciate it. Enough of my ramblings, enough of the jibber-jabber. Let's get into the main part of the show. This week, I got to sit down and chat with Johnny of Prison. First thing I got to say, thank you so very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So if you're unaware of who Prison are, they play kind of a new metal-influenced metalcore. They formed in 2017, currently have two releases under their belt. I'm really excited to have got Johnny on the show, not only to discuss his ins and outs with his passions and his music, but also because Johnny does a lot for the mental health industry and also has done a TED Talk. So it's a really exciting conversation, really in-depth and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. That chat with Johnny is coming up now. Uh, So, I start off with kind of the same thing for everyone, and not necessarily a heavy band, but do you remember a band that you remember getting heavily into as a kid uh, that helped open your world to music existing? Wait, are we recording already? Yeah, I'm, I'm recording. Heck yeah. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Um, that's good because now you know I'm being real. I didn't even know it was recorded. Um, a band that opened me up to music in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just music being a thing, you know. Because like I remember as a kid, I wasn't into heavy music yet, but about the age of five or six, I was obsessed with Aerosmith, and I don't know why. Oh yeah. So let's see. This was like before I even. This was before I had a stereo, so I'm going I'm going way far back. Um, this was like before I even listened to the radio or anything like that. We had uh, we had a cassette player that I would 
use when I clean my chore was cleaning the bathroom mm-hmm. in my house. So I would borrow my mom's cassette player. I actually have uh, the cassette buttons tattooed on my fingers. <laughs> I have like fast forward, rewind, record, play, pause, that stuff. Um, and it's because of that cassette player. And we only had two cassettes. One was, I mean, I'm sure my parents had more, but I could only borrow two from my mom. One was, I think it was Beverly Hills Ninja 2. Oh. Like the soundtrack. So it's like a bunch of random songs from that movie. I think that's the movie. I need to look it up. And then the other one that we had um, was Aerosmith's Greatest Hits. Hey. So um, I, it's so weird. Like, I think Aerosmith was just around when we were growing up. And when I was a kid, I was like, what is this? And it just kind of... I don't know. For, ever since the first time I heard music, I was like, well, this is for sure what I want to do with my whole life. Um, and I think I kind of dipped into rap before I made my way back to rock. Wow. So, I mean, did you naturally discover rap or was it one of those things that was on TV and on the radio? So you got into it. I think it was because my older brother listened to rap. So he was listening to like um, 50 Cent and Nelly and um Eminem like you got to think Missy Elliott like what was on the radio back then and um when my parents were in the shower or on the porch or something like when they weren't in their room I would go to their room and turn on uh cuz they had a TV in their room and I would turn on VH1 or MTV and watch music videos and that's where I found out about like uh Eminem and eventually Linkin Park and Corn and all that stuff so I mean you mentioned, you know, once you kind of got into music, you realized that's what you wanted to do. What about music made you realize that? Do you remember like the, the what was the tan, um, untangible thing about it that drew you in? Was it the energy? Was it the expression? Uh, what made you obsessed with music? Dude, I don't, I don't even think I knew. I was like, a child like this this might have even been before elementary school so like you i mean you don't even know your freaking abcs before that age <laughs> and i just knew like there was something in me looking back i think it's kind of a primal thing like rhythm and melody and tone and vibration like i think i i mean i think there's a caveman in all of us mm. and it communicates not via traditional language, but with like rhythm and tone and harmony. And it's just something universal. And I think when I was a kid, I was, have you ever seen something or heard something and you don't know what to say about it, but you're just like, yes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about it, but yes. So I I don't know. It was, of course I wanted to be a comedian when I was younger. I wanted to be um, an actor. I wanted to be a bunch of different stuff, but I think, I wanted to be a musician first. Like from the moment I heard music, I was like, this is so magical. How do I make some? So what was music like in the household? You said, you know, um, you were allowed to listen to a couple of cassettes, but were were anyone in your family a musician? Did anyone play instruments? Was, was music heavily played in the house? What was the environment la- like for you at home with music? No, there was actually not a whole ton of music in the house. Um, I played outside a ton when I was younger. My parents were the kind of parents, I'm sure lots of people listening to this were the same way. My parents were the kind of parents were just like go outside Mm -hmm. and like come back in when it's dinner time, you know? (laughs) So we would just always be outside. Like 
we'd skateboard and like play basketball and soccer. And we're always just like, we were very outside kids. Um, but I know that like there were guitars in the house. So I think, I don't know my dad very well, actually. Um, but I know that he did play guitar at some point because we have guitars. We had guitars in the house growing up and it's not like he would sit around playing or anything like that, but I would always see them and be like, wow, what the heck? And then I start, I would try to noodle around with them. And and then I think for my eighth birthday, I got a little first act like children's guitar from Walmart and started jamming. Mm. So, I mean, you going into like your discovery of the heaviest stuff, you mentioned you started seeing like corn, Limp Bizkit, was that were those the bands that kind of started the spark for the heavier stuff? And then the second part of the question is, how did you go from starting off around that style to suddenly the extreme side of things? Well, I I, I would credit those bands with like introducing me to that. So I'd I'd say probably the biggest catalysts in my journey as a listener and i am a listener before i'm a musician like Mm. i am first things first i'm a music fan before anything else so like i think lincoln park uh limp biscuit slipknot and system of a down were probably like the main ones i know that there were others during that time but those for me like when i heard system of a down i was like what is happening in in like my head and my heart like what is what is this experience and of course i listened to a lot of radio rock at the time too so i was big on i still am big on like three days grace and breaking benjamin and chevelle seether is one of my favorite bands of all time um edema like we grew up in like alternative metal and new metal fantasy land Mm. like our era we were so spoiled rotten with like all this incredible music on the airwaves and and then I think it was honestly MySpace mm. that introduced me to a bunch of the crazy stuff. So I, I started going to shows in middle school. My buddy just would bring me to some hardcore and punk shows um, in my local area. And and one of the first shows I ever went to was The Warriors and Full Blown Chaos. Way um, nice. which are Yeah. And when I went, I was like, screw this. (laughs) I left because the show got shut down. There were fights and people were throwing drumsticks and merch tables getting knocked over. And I was like 12. (laughs) So I'm like, screw this. This is a miserable place. And then the next weekend, my my buddy was like, you want to go to a show? And I was like, heck yes, (laughs) because I just couldn't (laughs) I couldn't get over it. And then eventually, I think the real catalyst was as I was going to these hardcore shows, I pretty much only had access to whatever played my town. Mm-hmm. So if a band didn't play in my town, I kind of had I I had no way of discovering them. And then when I made a MySpace and and I saw I would find a band and then look at their top eight friends and find those bands and their top eights. And eventually, I was listening to like Devourment and like the Partisan Turbine. I'm like, what happened to me? <laughs> and that's quite a leap. That's quite a leap getting into that stuff. Like, I mean, oh yeah. I remember for my own personal getting into the extreme sides, it did take me a little bit to get into it. I mean, was it the same for you? Was it your initial when you hear it, you were a bit like, fucking this is nonsense. This is too heavy. I can't make out what they're saying. Or was it an instant attraction when you heard it? You're like, oh, I just I just love it. I always, I think it was kind of 
a relief for me to find something heavier because when I was listening to when I first heard hardcore and punk, I was like, ugh, like yeah, hold <laughs> yourself, you know. Because I was used to that like sanitized radio rock, which I still love, like to this day. Um, but there was part of me that was like, man, I, I hardcore and punk is cool, but I want something heavier, like crushingly heavy. Like I want it to rattle my bones. I want to be like confused. And then when I started hearing that like like brutal death metal, like heavy, super, super heavy, I was just like, oh, it exists. This sounds like bears and aliens and like, you know, that. I mean, that's very appealing to a 13 year old, 14 year old who, who feels like, you know, nobody understands me and, and my friends don't know who I am and I don't fit in. And then you hear this like monstrous guttural, you know, nonsense. And you're just like, heck yes. Like this is me, you know? So was your local scene full of mainly hardcore and punk? Was it, was there not a lot of the, you mentioned MySpace opened your world to this, you know, guttural brutal heavy as hell stuff but was there not a lot of that playing in your local scene i mean it, there there must have been i mean i i live in tampa florida that's where i grew up so everyone says like that's the death metal capital of the world but mm. i haven't seen a lot of that firsthand and i think that part of that might be because i was so young at the time like i had no way of finding out about shows like I would only go to shows that my friend told me about and his mom had to drive us because we were kids. So it's not like I had this big Rolodex that we have now on Spotify where I can educate myself and pour through discographies. It was like, you know, if my friend Jeff didn't tell me about a show and if his mom didn't drive us, then we didn't go see the band. So <laughs> it like it started with just local bands and then we we went to see i remember early early on we went to see uh white chapel and impending doom and mm. with blood comes cleansing mm. and oceano i think they were all on a tour together and then it was like i declare war and molotov solution and slowly as bands would come through um we, we and after asking my mom a hundred times to drive me to a show, eventually she would drive me to one, but only if it was on a weekend and only if she picked me up at nine o'clock, which was like before the headliner even went on. So what's the point of going to, I'm like, yeah, mom, drive me to go see Whitechapel. And then she picks me up like an hour before Whitechapel plays. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, all right, well. <laughs> so was your mom, was your family not very supportive of, you know, your musical taste or were they kind of, you know, supportive in different aspects because obviously you know at at a kid wanting to go to a show it's understandable she probably wanted to still look after you but what did she think of you listening to you know devil's music as some people say dude i you know what i can empathize with my parents now like so i'm 27 i i'm single and i don't have kids or anything but I think like if I had a if I had a daughter and she was like, Daddy, I want to go see Devourment, I'd be like, heck no. Like you are not <laughs> polluting your ears with that horrible, awful junk. Like I would be so protective. And I can see how parents would be. But then there's stuff that like, you know, there's a lot of like Christian metal, there's a lot of posy hardcore and a lot of metal that isn't isn't really negative in nature. And I think I think that was hard for my parents to get like, yeah, there's a ton of really brutal dark. I mean, there's so much like stupid death core and death metal about like chopping up bodies and stuff, which I just think is, you know, to each their own. But I, I I'm like, well, that's not doing us any favors when we're 
teenagers asking our parents to drive us to shows and they like Google the lyrics and they're like, good Lord. <laughs> but I think, I think what was hardest for them to understand was that it wasn't this like negative spiteful atmosphere. Like I, th- it was hard for them to understand that when I went to a show, I felt full and whole and, and happy and like I belonged somewhere. And it was difficult to, to convey that to them because all they saw was, you know, fights at shows and shows getting shut down and these, these shirts with really negative gory things on them. And at the time I was like, Oh, you're being so close minded. But now I can totally see how like the metal community has not, we haven't done ourselves a bunch of favors when it comes to like PR, you Mm -hmm. know? No. And, and I think one of the big ones in there is like you said, t-shirts, you know, you want to get a t-shirt of your favorite band. And then when your parent sees it and it's got a skull and blood and, you know, a dead body on it. I mean, understandably, they're not going to want their 13, 14-year-old kid to wear it. Dude, my freaking parents would throw away a T-shirt from Walmart with a dragon on it. You know? <laughs> like, they were... I had those... You know those, like, silky uh, button-down short sleeve shirts with, like, the flames and dragons on them? Yep, yep. Yeah, that was, like, my aesthetic. <laughs> and my, they, my shirts would just, like, gradually disappear. And I'm like, wow, where are these going? And I'm sure my parents were like, this is junk. Like, get this out of the house. <laughs> so if I thought I could get a Whitechapel shirt that says, like, effed and left for dead on the back, it's like, no. Yeah, I wouldn't even luck. buy it because I knew my parents would ditch it. So you mentioned, you, uh, you mentioned about, you know, being at music or around music made you feel like you belonged and you were a part of something, which I think a lot of people listening can definitely, you know, probably connect with. So what was it like for you in your high school years? Did you feel um, isolated? Did you feel like you belonged to a group? I mean, was school a good time or a difficult time for you? The answer is yes. <laughs> mm. I I had... Um, it, it was good and difficult. I, I didn't know any kids at my school who listened to metal, so that was always like something that unfortunately kept me at arm's length with a lot of people. They, you know, I'd wear a despised icon shirt and it has like a bleeding skull on it or something like you said. And people are like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk to that guy. And and part of me was like, you know, this is who I am. This isn't a phase. And then like, well, yeah, cut to cut to 13 years later and I'm still playing shows, you know. <laughs> so I I think in high school, I. I really wanted to connect with people, but it was so difficult. Um, it, partly because of some mental and emotional health issues that I was experiencing at the time. And partially because I was extremely socially awkward. So I had no idea how to connect with other people really. And then ultimately it was like the most important thing in my life was music. And none of my friends liked the same music as me. So it was, it was really challenging. I mean, it was challenging to connect with people knowing that they were rejecting a huge part of my identity. And that would have made you go further down the rabbit hole with your musical passion as well, though. It would have probably driven you further into music. Yeah, I, I it's funny. I spoke at this event last week with a bunch of like middle and high schoolers, and I was talking about how like I was super pimply in high school, and I was like not a very popular kid and I didn't have a million friends and, and I was saying like, well, if I was the most popular person in my high school, 
I probably would have been too busy, like going on dates with girls and and being the quarterback of the football team or whatever trope you want to put out there to actually sit down with my guitar. So like, I don't think I would be the musician I am today if I had a social life that was totally flowering and flourishing in middle and high school, because, you know, my brothers would uh, play sports and they would play video games and they would go hang out with their friends. And a lot of my time was spent in my room with my guitar and a bunch of system of a down tabs. (laughs) (laughs) I learned literally at one point, I'm not even joking. I could play every single system of a down song ever written because I looked up all the tabs on 911 tabs and printed them out on my mom's computer. And then I kept them in a big binder that said system of a down tabs. And I learned every single song that they had ever put out on guitar. And you can't do that if you have a ton of friends, you know? Yeah. You, you can't do it if you have a social life. You, that's yeah. You know. Um, What was it like for you, you know, with your discovery with instruments you mentioned in there playing guitar. So where was, your transition from, you know, sitting in your room playing System of a Down on tabs to being a vocalist in a band? Was there a natural progression or was it just kind of a thing that the cards fell in the places as they may? It's it's kind of funny looking back. I, like, never wanted to be in a metal band and I never wanted to be a vocalist. Mm. <laughs> so... Yeah, like I wanted to write lyrics and stuff for sure. Like that's something I had done my whole life. But ultimately, I wanted to be a guitarist. I was playing guitar all the time. So I would go to shows and ask people like, you know, do you guys need a guitarist? Of course, I didn't have any gear. I was using my dad's guitar. This is like old, and I mean old, guitar from the 70s. And I had a little practice amp. I was, I don't know how I thought I was going to play shows. I didn't even have a head <laughs> or anything. And I didn't know crap about gear. I didn't have pedals or anything. I just like knew how to play guitar. And um, I really wanted to be in like a hardcore punk style band. Like Trash Talk was one of my favorite bands. Mm. And I just wanted to do that style of music and play guitar. And then eventually by asking people, you know, what do you need and what does this band need? And do you know anybody who's looking for an extra band member? Eventually I wound up with uh, the guys that, now I guess we would call it dark sermon, but at the Mm -hmm. time they were literally, I think they were called remembering the pilot or something. Mm -hmm. It was like some weird band name like that. And then I met with them and they were like, well, we need a vocalist. And I was like, I can try. And it was so bad, dude. My vocal quote audition was just like screaming. It was the most, it was hands down the most embarrassing moment of my whole life. Because I didn't know what I was doing. And then they were like, that seems good enough. <laughs> what? So, I mean, what? Yeah. You, you just winged it. And then it was obviously not 100% horrible to them. And they said, ah, well, they'll do. You can get in. Dude, it, yeah, I have this like th- a conspiracy theory that they only said yes to me because nobody else auditioned. Because <laughs> it was like, you guys got a picture. Like, I, I don't know where the listeners are from or where you guys are living or anything, but this was in Safety Harbor, Florida. So, like, you know, it's not like there's a line out the door of people waiting to audition for a band with a bunch of 13 and 14 year olds. <laughs> like we we were literally I mean, none of us knew what we were doing, really. And I think they just said yes, because I was the only person who tried to join the band. So, I, I mean, there was there was a tiny part of me that would like jump up 
at the opportunity to, to be on stage at all. So I was like, all right, well, if you guys are looking for a vocalist, I mean, I write lyrics and, and I kind of thought naively at the time, like how hard could screaming be? Like, it's just yelling, like people yell when they're angry. How hard could it be? So I was just like, sure. And then uh, slowly over the course of the next decade and change, it kicked my butt. So, I mean, without going too far forward, um, in your early phase of basically just yelling into a microphone, did you over time learn a technique or were you um, adapting as you went or were you using someone like Melissa Cross and... What was it like for you developing your sound? I mean, were you ever comfortable with developing your sound? Because I know some people say that the first time they heard themselves scream, like on recording or playback from a live show, they hated it. I think most people have this weird like image of who they are, not necessarily a visual image, but just like an image altogether. So that includes like how you sound, how you smell, you know, everything. And you know, even like I host a podcast right now and I listen to my voice back on edits of the episodes and I'm like, what the heck? Mm. Like, is that really what my voice sounds like? So with screaming, I always wanted there to be like this trick. Like I was looking on YouTube and I'm like, there's got to be some thing where it's like, yeah, do this with your throat and then you'll magically sound like this guy. And at the time I was trying to sound like everybody else. I was like, Oh, I want to sound like the guy from job for a cowboy or the guy from black Dahlia. Or, um, I really liked the banner mm-hmm. at the time. And I wanted to sound like the vocalist of the banner so bad. And no matter how hard I tried, I obviously could not sound like these people because I'm not them. So it just uh, really over time, I think the way that I found how Johnny Crowder sounds is just trying and failing to sound like everybody else like every other vocalist that i loved and then also not doing something if it hurt so the moment something hurt my throat i was like peace i'm mm. not do i'm not trying to do that thing anymore because that's not sustainable like if a vocal style sounds good but it hurts your throat you can't expect a tour so i just was slowly eliminating like, well, I'm not doing that because it hurts and I'm not doing that because I don't sound like that. And slowly by process of elimination, I started figuring out what my voice sounded like. So you, you get into what becomes dark sermon basically because nobody else tries out. That's what we'll, we'll say. Um, just by chance. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I don't know that my band would tell me that <laughs> my old band, but I, I, I'm like, how good could I have been for someone who just had never done it before, you know? And when you joined, is that when the band got changed? Well, had the name in reference to a sinking ship? Yeah, that was like around the same time. I think they had played like one show or something before me or a couple shows, but it was like not even shows. It was like a few members playing at someone's house as like a three piece. So, you know, technically I was a founding member, but unfortunately I had no say, um, I had no jurisdiction over the band name. <laughs> yeah. Cause that name, I mean, we are looking back in, this is around 2009, 2008, I believe. And it, a lot of people now will laugh at that name, but I remember that time where everyone's band name was really long, and you know, oh, yeah. had references to ships or stars or oceans and things like this. So, yeah, oh yes, especially look, living in Florida, that's all we have. You look at it now and you go, "That's a really emo metalcore kind of band name." Like, 
Well, we were kind of a kind of a metalcore band. We sounded a lot like um, like August Burns Red or like a plea for purging. You know, it did not start out super heavy. I'll say that. And what were the initial um, expectations or goals that you had when you started the band? Obviously, your big goal would have been to you know tour the world and stuff. But was it literally at the start just play as much shows as possible? record an EP, because you did under that name record an EP, the Aimless EP, and a demo. So what was the expectation? Yeah, we actually, yeah, we, I mean, when you're 15, you don't even know what your goals are, you know? I just, like, wanted to play shows. I, I could give a crap less about recording um, or or social media or sales or merch or anything. I was like, I just put me on a freaking stage. <laughs> And so that's kind of what we did for for a couple years. We just tried to play, you know, we'd play, we'd do weekenders every single weekend. We'd play like uh, Newport Ritchie, Florida on Friday. And then on Saturday, we'd play um, Clearwater, Florida. And then on Sunday, we'd play Tampa, Florida. And all these cities are like less than an hour from each other. So we're basically like going home and sleeping at our houses every night. And we just play as many, we'd try to be on every single show just to get as much visibility as possible. And we would later find out that the reason the band wasn't catching or getting signed was because of the band name, which is hilarious. Like right after we changed the band name, we got signed. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a bit of a I mean, eye opener, but what was it? What was the reception like apart from the name to the sound? Because the sound definitely changed after you changed the name. So, was the sound, you know, that core August Burns Red style working for you, or was it too much of the same thing that was going on around you? Well, it was working really well. Like we, I would say that we were definitely one of like the hometown favorite bands, which was pretty cool. Like when we would play a show, a bunch of people would like sing along and pile up and, you know, we had like a really healthy presence in the local scene, but we were just slowly falling out of love with that style of music. And we were starting to listen to like Behemoth and Gojira and like a little bit more people are going to take this however they want but in my opinion those are like a little more mature sounds Mm -hmm. um so we were growing as musicians and we were kind of like you know we we put out our first demo in 2009 Mm. and then aimless was 2010 and then we put out some some another couple songs in 2011 that weren't even on a release we just put them out on myspace so it's like looking back, I think when we were in 2011, 2012, we we're like, I don't know if we want to play songs that we wrote in 2008. Like it just felt kind of stale and not really, it didn't feel representative of the band anymore. So we actually only changed the band name because the sound was changing so much. Like all our new demos were a lot more metal and we're like, man, we're like almost not even the same band. Were you worried about, you know, you were saying kind of like hometown hero kind of thing. Were you worried about mm, changing the name would lose the momentum that you were naturally gathering? Yeah. And we did <laughs> like, I'm not even going to lie. We, a lot of people fell off when we changed our name. Like we lost 
all of our MySpace following, like nobody followed over to the new project, like almost nobody. And that was around the time Facebook was popping up. So nobody liked the new Facebook page and uh, like nobody would buy our merch. And it was hard to get booked because people were like dark sermon. <laughs> like who the heck is that? Like I've literally never heard of them. And I was like, no, it's me. I've been playing shows here for four years and people would be like, Oh, I don't know. So it was like it was the biggest risk we ever took was like starting over, but it actually worked to our advantage. Yeah, and one of the things it did was before you even released, you know, the first album under Dark Sermon, that the name, was you guys got signed. So um what happened there? Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Did you do a, you know, a performance thing for them? Because you've changed the name you're a bit worried about the momentum and then suddenly you're getting signed by E1 and distribution through Nuclear Blast. Yeah, we like <laughs> it's so funny. I always pictured I always pictured getting signed like a Disney movie or something where like this, you know, hot shot guy in a suit is like, "Hey, I'm going to fly you out to LA and you play in front of us and do a showcase." <laughs> but it it was like literally nothing like that. Like we put out we self-funded a music video, which is, I mean, you got to think a bunch of teenagers trying to like try and we had to drive to Ohio to film it. It was like, dude, we did so much work for like high schoolers. And so we like self-filmed this music video and then we just drop it. We're like, hey, we're putting out a music video and then we drop it. And this was back before YouTube was like dominated by this evil algorithm that keeps everyone from seeing what you post. <laughs> um, so back then, like if a YouTube video, if people liked a YouTube video, then more people would see it. And that was just kind of how it worked. So we put up a music video on our own that actually now has like over a hundred thousand views. And at the time we put it out and we're like this tiny little independent band and we put out the music video and in, in, an, in 24 hours, it has 10,000 views like mm -hmm. in a day. And we were like, what the heck? And then by the end of that, week it had 20,000 views and and we were all like yo this is actually a thing like how the <laughs> heck is this happening and and this was just i do miss this era of the internet because uh facebook wasn't limiting your reach artificially mm. and making you pay to talk to people who liked your page so you got to think like back then, let's say we had 5,000 people who liked the page. If we post a music video, all 5,000 people see it. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, could you imagine if Facebook was like that now? Like how much bigger all these bands would be? Mm -hmm. So eventually, I guess some somebody shared it and then somebody shared it again and somebody shared it again. And eventually it came across the desk of a few labels. And we, we were actually in talk with a couple different labels and um, – one of them, E1, was like, hey, we'll send you a paper contract. Mm. And it was so long. <laughs> it was like 32 <laughs> pages long. I still have it somewhere. I think it's I think it's in my dresser. Did you and read it, the I remember thing? just being like, well, I'm a child. <laughs> I don't know crap about anything, dude. Like, I just looked at it and I'm like, ugh, God. Like, and I'm a writer, too. I love to read. I love to write. You know, I'm big on... You know, it's not like I have an aversion to reading, but when I saw this thing, I'm like, dude, I don't even know half the words in this. And it was like really dense legal jargon. And we had we gave it to our bassist's uncle who was who's like a personal injury attorney or something. And we were just like, hey, you're the closest thing to a lawyer that we know. 
um, can you read over this and make sure we're not getting screwed? And he's like, seems fine. And then we signed it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. We, Dude, looking back, it was the most reckless thing I've ever done. <laughs> I like did not understand the legal implications of that commitment. Did you guys feel signing to a label at such a young age put any extra pressure or expectation on you as a band? Or did you just oh. feel like it was a a lucky step to be achieving so early on. No, it was like all of a sudden our success had, it, it almost had nothing to do with whether we were fulfilled or not. Mm-hmm. It had to do with whether we sold enough copies to where the label could justify keeping us on the label. Mm-hmm. It was really weird. Like it switched from me being like, I'm playing shows and like, this is what I've always wanted to do to like, Oh, we need to make sure we break this many album sales this week or we need to make sure we sell this much merch and we need to get on a call with our manager and it was like looking back i think it was it was it was a really difficult time because when you're that young nobody respects you Mm. but then they also know that you don't know anything so you can't leave you're like trapped like if i were to talk back to a manager at that time like, hey, I don't agree with that, or I don't think that's a good decision. He'd, I mean, he would be able to say like, okay, then quit, mm. or I'll drop you. Because then, what are you gonna do? You're 19. You don't know anything. Like, you either stick with what I'm saying and deal with it, or you leave. And there's a hundred bands in line behind you that I can take that can take your place. So was, I felt I felt very trapped. Well, it not only sound you know not only understandably trapped, but at such a young age. It's also out of nowhere turned being in a band from not being necessarily fun and just enjoying it to the business side of things, like you said. Yeah, it it was definitely a switch that I didn't understand. And it I think it hurt me in a lot of ways. Like, and I don't mean to talk crap about nuclear blast or E1, like you guys got to understand there's there's hundreds and hundreds of people who work at these places. Mm. So this is not a reflection on the whole company. You know, no. I, I mean, I couldn't name more than five people at either of those organizations, if that really. But I just think we were such small potatoes and the pressure was so intense that it was like, you know, they'd be like, well, why isn't this group of teenagers selling as much as Black Dahlia? And it's like, cause we're, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> like that's such an unrealistic <laughs> expectation. So it made it, it made it a lot harder to have fun because it became less about fun and fulfillment and more about, um, performance, not, not about live performance. That would make me really happy, but it, it became about like numbers, which I really didn't like. It felt way more like a business. It also would have made, um, that adjustment going on and then the adjustment of, suddenly being on a label and being a band that now is expected to tour a lot. You know, you're expected to go out and do more than just a weekender or a short stint of shows. You're expected to be on the road on a regular basis. That would have also impacted you guys individually, but also as a group. Dude, that's what I, I think that's what people don't understand when they think about their favorite bands. It's like, dude, I I had a full ride scholarship for psychology and I quit school (laughs) like i left and i was living in orlando i moved back in with to be fully transparent i moved back in with abusive parents Mm. 
Mm. Like I, I, because I couldn't, you know, like people don't understand how much I had to give up. I lost, I lost relationships over it. Jo- I had to quit jobs over it. I, I mean, I lost almost every opportunity in my entire life because of music, even to this day. And it's not me. It's not just me. It's like, oh, I can almost guarantee that every music, every artist that you love has given up a tremendous amount of opportunity and prosperity and relationship just so they could come to your tiny town and play this stinky bar because they love you that much, you know? It also, but that's that's something, like you said, people don't understand. And it's also that your life goes basically into a part of life that no one normally experiences you know you are growing up on the road you're not experiencing life events that everyone else gets to normally you're missing birthdays you're missing uh, celebrations funerals weddings Um, everything in your life takes a weird shift and in some ways a lot of people it makes or breaks them and also it makes people either love music or resent music because as you said for yourself you had things where you had to go back to um, a negative environment at home yeah I do want to clarify though I I if I could crucify the music industry I would Mm. if I could like just burn it and throw it all in the garbage I would but I love music so much like it is not music's fault. Music is pure. Music is magic. Music is what flows through my veins and gets me out of bed in the morning. Music is my entire life. I think the industry is is an absolute it's it's a pit of snakes. Mm-hmm. It's like a just it's a den of sin. It is just unbelievably greedy and and conniving and terrible. And but here's the thing we have an opportunity as artists to influence that. And I mean, it's the same thing that I, you know, I think a lot of religion is like this very polluted man-made version of something that is actually wonderful. And I think music is the same way, just like, just like music is really pure and wonderful and, and it sustains me. I think uh, my, my relationship with God is the same way, but then I look at, some things going on in the music industry or I look at things going on in, in religion and I'm just like, Oh man, this is such a sad, um, outcome. It's such a perversion of what music and what God was actually meant to be. So I just want to clarify, I don't, I don't have, I don't think music has ever done anything wrong. I think the way that the industry can use someone's passion for music to manipulate and take advantage of them. We see it all the time. Um, I think that's what really needs to be fixed. Is that something you think that we can ever fix realistically? A hundred percent. But I, but I'm not realistic though. So I don't like that last word. I live on this magical planet where every day I wake up and I'm like, uh, you know, prison is going to be bigger than the Beatles today. Fuck like yeah. we're going to flip the whole world upside down and we're we're going to play a show and there's going to be 10 million people at it. Like I just, I never, I, I don't think, I think anything can be changed if you try. And I think mm-hmm. the main thing is that not a lot of people are trying. I think if everyone woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, I'm going to figure out how I 
can directly support my favorite artist directly to them to where nobody else has a say in my support for them. I think if every music fan woke up and did that tomorrow, the industry would freaking crumble in the best way Mm -hmm. because it would be about the music and the fans. And to me at the end of the day, that is all it's about. It's about the art itself. It's about performance and connection at the end of the day. It's about the listener. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, want to come back to the dark sermon stuff a little bit, and you guys got in tongues out in around 2013. Then, um, how was that for you guys received? Like, did you find that you really loved that album and you loved playing off the back of it? Because that album and the second one, the Oracle, slight difference in sound. There was that an intentional thing, also. I think it was just so there were a couple questions in there. I'll say yeah. that when In Tongues came out, we loved it. We weren't crazy about the the final product. Uh we were very rushed. Um and that's something that's another thing I don't think fans think about is like, oh, this record, you know, the production isn't what I wanted it to be or the the songs feel lazy or something. It's like, dude, maybe you don't know like if if we went to the studio and all of a sudden we have half the amount of time or or they're cutting parts out of songs that would have made them whole. So as kids, we didn't really take a lot of um, autonomy in that process because we were like, well, let's just listen to the adults. So there were definitely times where our voices, our creative voice was drowned out. But then I think the difference between In Tongues and The Oracle is just a difference of like – I mean think about yourself – were you any different when you were 18 than when you were 21? Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of people are like, oh, it's such an interesting growth in sound. And it's like, well, it was it was literally only because we were like still going through puberty, you know, like <laughs> we were changing so much as people. And I think anything you do is a result of that. You look at a painting that you did three years ago versus today and you see a huge change. And, and sometimes... I mean, that's not always an intentional change. Sometimes that's just because, wow, I'm, I have so much life experience now versus a couple years ago that the product of my art couldn't be the same. Mm. Well, I mean, do you feel like Dark Sermon felt like a band that really were just getting bigger and bigger because you look, you know, you look at the list of bands you guys were playing with and it's just a who's who of heavy and extreme music. Um, did it feel like the, boundaries were limitless for the band because it didn't take long after the oracle and then things kind of went quiet and then there was the hiatus so did you feel like everything was going in the right direction before it slowed down yeah we it's so weird we had this lull uh, only real fans would know this piece of dark sermon trivia but we <laughs> this is like right before we did a tour with aborted um and fit for an autopsy this was like way way back and oh, an arch spire was on that tour too. Mm. And um, right before that tour, like a week before that tour, our freaking van got stolen. And we had to just buy a new van from a dealership. Keep in mind, we are children <laughs> at this point. And we buy a new van for like $24,000 and we just put it on credit. 
because we like we literally had to do that or else we couldn't do the tour. So that put us into such tremendous debt, like insurmountable debt. And, you know, we're working at Chipotle and stuff, Starbucks. So we're making after tax, we're making like five ninety US an hour, like five dollars and ninety cents. And then we're supposed to pay off a $24,000 debt. And you know that on tour, we're not getting paid anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're we're paying our manager, we're paying our booking agent. Uh, money from album sales is going to recoup uh, the label's costs. So really we're, we're in debt on tour and then we're in debt at home. And it puts such a huge strain on the band. But then we kind of caught a second wind and we started, we did that cattle decapitation tour. We did Dyer as murder and we're like, yo, we are coming back. We were supposed to do summer slaughter. And then we were supposed to go to, uh, uh, Europe with, uh, within the ruins. We had all this amazing stuff lined up. And then it was like a few of our members were just like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> I think they were just so, they were so fatigued. Like I was getting excited cause I'm like, we're back, dude. I thought that this band had just, I, I thought the financial burden was just too much and we were touring too much and it just was killing us as people. And then here we are coming back, here we are coming back. And then they're like, yeah, we're too tired. And I was like, no way. So it was definitely a blow to me, um, that they didn't want to continue because I was like trying to Frankenstein that band back together. I'm like, you know, whatever it takes. And it just, one person can't do five people's jobs, you know? No. And that, and when you're pushing and pushing and doing everything to motivate and keep the ball rolling and then everyone else is like, nah, catch you later. I mean, what's that do to you emotionally and mentally? Does that really smash you pretty bad? Oh, I had a full identity crisis. Like, I'm not even joking when I say that identity crisis. Like, I remember we pulled up to this venue in in New Mexico. This was, like, on our headliner um, in 2016, I want to say. And um, we pull up to this venue, and this was shortly after uh, my guitarist was kind of like, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. And then a few of the other members were like, yeah, we're like not trying to tour anymore this year. And I was like, what? So we, they had just told me and I was wrestling with it. I was in the back of the van and we pull up at the venue and this kid is like wanting me to sign something. He's outside of the van and I cannot come out of the van because I am sobbing uncontrollably. Mm. I am like inconsolable. I mean like heaving, like soaking wet, crying, and I just can't stop for like an hour. And it it really like I mean imagine building your life on something and then someone says hey never mind and you have no say in it like I had a full on identity crisis and for months and months I I gained a ton of weight um, I stopped working out I stopped I I mean I was being really inconsistent with my medication at the time I was skipping therapy appointments I like. I'm surprised that I survived that period because it felt like someone said, Hey, you have to build a new personality from the ground up. Uh, And you know, how do you, I know from your Ted talk, but for anyone listening that hasn't yet, how do you start on your path with your steps to getting better? Because, you know, as you've said in your Ted talk, again, some, everyone needs to watch it. I will link it. Um, when I post this, but, you know, what were the steps t- that you were taking that you didn't know that you were taking that were getting you back to recovery? Because if it's months of this, um, 
I know from my own mental health, if you're going through months of it, there, sh- there is periods where you don't think you're getting back. Mm. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah, I... Um... I think it's about the little stuff. So it's like these tiny little differences. So like earlier in this in this conversation, I made a clarification between music and the music industry. Mm-hmm. And I think I had to do that for a lot of things in my life. Like, does me not being in Dark Sermon mean that I'm not a musician? And you would think like, you know, if you're listening, you're like, well, no, you know, you're a musician no matter what band you're in. But at the time... I couldn't make that differentiation. So I had to do that in a lot of areas of my life. Like, do I even like music anymore? And the answer is yes, of course I love music. What kind of question is that? It's that I don't like the fact that I have to depend on other people's commitment to continue pursuing music. And then it was like, well, can I pursue pursue music outside of Dark Sermon? And then it's like, well, technically, yes. So it was a lot of these tiny little it was separating myself and what I wanted to do from my circumstance. So instead of saying, instead of saying I'm depressed, I would say my depression is telling me Mm. or something like that. Mm. So making that tiny little differentiation, like I I'm not disappointed in music. I'm disappointed in the way that my current band is crumbling Mm. and I'm not, I'm not experiencing, you know, I know I'm kind of rambling, but it was such a challenging time. I think the biggest thing that I had to do was recognize that with or without Dark Sermon, I was still Johnny Crowder, and that took me a long time to work through. You were saying about with or without Dark Sermon, and you know, earlier in the conversation you said that kind of you came into the band and it wasn't really your band in some elements. So was there ever the thought for you that, okay, everyone else is going to leave, maybe I can form this again with new people and keep it going? Or was that just never an option? Yeah, I, I really wanted to do it. And then I thought about all of the other bands that have done that Mm. and how it's always been terrible, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) people, people underestimate the value of chemistry. Like what makes a band that you love good is because one or two or three or four or five of those members all worked with each other to create this product. So as soon as you like swap someone out for somebody else, all of a sudden that magic is gone. Like there's a reason why prison has been the same members from day one. And we are like actively not changing that because what makes prison prison is who we are, you know? Well, I mean, you know, I also noticed, and I remember at the time when the statement you released saying that basically, you know, Dark Sermon's basically kind of done, you already at that stage had prison going. So where was that in your timeline and how did that go about? I mean, how long did it take you between, you know, the guys saying to you, we're leaving Dark Sermon, to you actually motivating yourself to getting prison developed oh like a whole year that's what people don't know (laughs) like they think a lot of people think that i left dark sermon for prison and that's just not true like i was the only member who was not leaving dark sermon 
I was fighting tooth and nail. I think I think honestly I was being a big baby about it. I was like fiercely defending like no, you guys have to do this and you know, we made a commitment to each other and I was probably very annoying at the time <laughs> and I really was just defending my baby, like what I had built and and what I found to be a huge part of my identity, but I had started prison back in 2015 and w- it was just like demos we were just releasing songs on the internet for fun we didn't list uh band members anywhere or you know it was just like very very simple um it was just like a fun project that was just a creative outlet and then when dark sermon was like hey we're not doing this anymore i I spent you know eight months crying and tearing the wallpaper off and you know screaming and shaving my head just freaking out (laughs) and then after that, I was like, wow, well, if nothing has changed in this long, I, I guess they're really serious. Because I was hoping – I think I was holding out because I was hoping that the guys in Dark Sermon would be like, hey, we were just going through a phase and we're back now and sorry about that. So I was waiting. I, I like so badly wanted them to be like, hey, just kidding or you're you're on an episode of Punked <laughs> and we're back. And what actually happened was I – touch base with them again and they were like no we still don't want to do it and i was like wow so so if i still want to do music i have to start over and then i was like wait there is prison i was like well i never really planned on prison being a full-time band so then i called my guitarist now cooper and said hey would you potentially want to start taking prison more seriously and at the time his band was breaking up too and it was just like this it was we like united in our in our mourning like we were mourning our old bands together and we were like well let's just build something on this foundation that we already started and then this will be our last hurrah cuz it's like so mentally and emotionally demanding to start something so everyone in prison is in agreement like you know if something happens to prison like we're done like we can't you can't tour in a metal band forever like it's so bad for you you know so this is like our big last stab at changing the world through heavy music well i mean you you look at prison um and changing the world and just what you do lyrically um definitely does that i mean it's it's different to dark sermon in some ways um and it feels like in prison, you really do just put yourself, you know, out there. You bear yourself, um, and you empower self people at the same time. Was that a big conscious thing for you to do with prison? That you wanted to do this with your lyrics? I'm not saying oh, you yeah. didn't. I'm There's not saying no... you didn't do it with Dark Sermon. I'm just saying in prison, it feels a lot more. You know. I think in Dark Sermon, I was still trying to protect myself. I was mm. like. You know, if I can dress this song up in a hundred metaphors, then maybe people won't know how screwed up I am. And then in prison, I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to say exactly who I am because I'm not I'm not going to play a character anymore. Like if I'm going to to me, music has always been about giving. Mm-hmm. Like I want to give back to the thing that saved my life, which is music. So music has always been about finding ways to contribute. And it's like 
am I really contributing if I dress everything I feel up in these metaphors and then I never directly answer questions in interviews about how I feel like screw that I am going to be a hundred percent myself on stage and off like I'm not playing a character anymore so prison was just prison was me saying you know what this is exactly who I am, whether the band exists or not, because then I think it solves the identity crisis thing. Mm. Because before I was like Johnny Crowder from prison or before I was like Johnny Crowder from dark sermon. And then when dark sermon left, I was like, Oh no, I haven't really been being, I haven't really been myself a hundred percent. So now in prison, it's like, yo, I'm Johnny Crowder, whether prison is a band or not, whether cope notes is a company or not, whether I, have tattoos or not, whether, you know, like I'm me no matter what. Is it easy, you know, to go from, cause I don't think it would be easy to go from, you know, kind of cloaking everything that you're doing to suddenly exposing everything. I think it's so much easier than people think it would be. Like I was so afraid at first because naturally way more people are critical of what I do now than before, mm-hmm. you know, because before Dark Sermon was like cool and cult and brutal. And now prison is like, oh, this guy's singing about being raped. Like, how does a guy get raped? Like mm. grow a pair, you know? So I get a lot of like really personal criticisms. But overall, it's like you got to think, you know, performing for a half hour a day is almost impossible it is like so physically taxing when you really give yourself to the performance but what made dark sermon so much more difficult was i would perform on stage for a half hour and then i would get off stage and perform the rest of the 23 hours because Mm. i was pretending to be this cool uh dark mysterious like cult like give me a break dude it was exhausting so now with prison I could play a hundred prison shows in a row and feel right as rain because I only have to be Johnny Crowder. And it's like, that's what I'm best at. <laughs> well, I also find, I find it quite refreshing because um, prison is kind of a band that you're welcoming uh, as a lot of music does. I'm not saying other music doesn't. You're welcoming everyone with their problems, their issues um, and saying, look, we all suffer. Um, and let's get better, basically, because you look through the lyrics and there's um, addiction, rape, mental health, suicide. Um, it also confronts people um, in some ways to acknowledge that they maybe have problems that they're not opening up about. Dude, the the fact is we don't receive invitations for that stuff. Like... No one's going around like, hey, have you considered that you might have an unresolved traumatic childhood experience? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, like who the heck is asking that? So we're like, literally all we want is just for people to feel something. Like no matter what it is, we just want for so much of our lives, we try to numb ourselves. Like we watch TV to numb ourselves. We drink to numb ourselves. We play video games. And it's like, dude, what if you freaking felt something? Like what if you actually felt a feeling without pretending it was something different without watering it down. So other people felt comfortable with it. Like what if you actually allowed yourself to feel something? So that's what we try to do at our shows and in our music. We're like, just, just look at it, whatever it is, whatever your problem is, stop pretending it's not there and look at it. Like we want people to leave a prison show 
and call their mom on the way home mm. or, you know, or, or journal that night or think critically about a mistake that they made in the past and then finally forgive themselves for it. Like it doesn't even have to be related to our lyrics. We just want people to meet themselves because they don't know themselves. Yeah, and you can you can see it with your fan base that you're creating as well. You you guys are creating quite a unique fan base. Dude, our fans are the best. They're so weird and and wonderful. They're like actually this kid sent us a a message recently and said that uh he was wearing a prison shirt and someone was wearing a prison shirt and they walked up to him and like gave him a great big hug. Yeah, and they were the guy was just like I love you, and it was like it was so weird. He was at a Slayer show or something, and it was like, dude, only prison fans are like are like that. And I just love that the culture we're creating is like people actively trying to support each other. It's like nothing I've ever seen in heavy music. No, and it's different, and I think it's wonderful as well. Um, I want to ask about with prison when you guys were kind of getting things going. Um, outside of the demos, and you went into the first release, NGRI. Um, stylistically, did you think about just doing something different, or were you thinking at the time, maybe I'll stick with what I did with Dark Sermon's style? Dude, I was so over Dark Sermon's style by the time I started working on NGRI. Like I was so burnt out with fast music. I was just over it. Like there were parts in Dark Sermon where it was just mind numbingly fast and it just, it wasn't speaking to me. I was like finding myself returning to my musical roots and listening to a lot of Korn and Slipknot and Linkin Park. And I was just like, man, I want like some slower, groovier, more accessible music. Cause that's what's fun for me. That's what I listen to. And it seems to have kind of grown in itself because NGRI feels a lot grittier than Still Alive. I think Still Alive is fucking massive sounding. Like Not that NGRI isn't. Um, but also an interesting thing that you've done with Prison, um, especially at the start, you're kind of an in- pretty much just solely independent. Uh, I know at the start you didn't have any management, for example, either. So... Was that an intentional thing as well? You wanted to step away from feeling like you were controlled and in a business and you wanted to have all control to yourself? I would like to take full credit for that and be like, yeah, I'm just I'm just that punk. But <laughs> I, th- I think that that was only part of it. If I'm being honest, the other part was uh, we were talking to some labels at the time and they were just dragging their feet, like just freaking taking their sweet old time, like... You know, we'd send in a a demo a month for a year to these labels and they'd be like, "Okay, well, just keep sending them in. It's like we just sent you 12 demos. Like, what are you waiting to hear? And uh, we just decided as a band, like, you know what, we're um, we're not going to waste away our 20s like for someone to tell us that our idea is good. Like we know that our idea is good. We know that somebody somewhere will appreciate the music we're writing. And if we wait around for someone to green light it, we might never put it out. So it was just like, people don't have a sense of urgency. Mm. And when you're in your twenties, you're like, dude, this is the only time I will be able to do this. Like the clock's a ticking. And if you're going to drag your feet, we, we need to put something out right now. And then when we put it out and it actually did well, 
And then we started getting good tours. We were kind of like, well, let's just see how long we can go without a label. And even to this day, we do not have a manager and we are not signed. Oh, see, I thought you got a manager. I knew you weren't signed, but wow. Okay. That's, that's sick unto itself. Um, so, uh, as, as you mentioned there, and I know as well, in NGRI did really well, um, you know, tours, um, people getting into it. When you went into last year's release, Still Alive, uh, was there any pressure and internal expectation with the sophomore release, or were you pretty relaxed getting into the sophomore release? Well, really, we are our main the main pressure that we feel is just trying to walk our fans through um, the changes that we're undergoing as a band. Like the new music, like you said, does have a different sound. There's a little bit more new metal influence in there. There's a little bit more rock influence. Um, there's definitely more clean singing um, and it's a lot more accessible. And we're just, we were mainly nervous about like, you know, our new demos that we haven't even put out yet. And we have tons of them. We have like 20 songs that we haven't released. And the new music is like a lot more accessible. And we were just nervous. Like we don't want our fans to, to think that we're selling out because this was the type of music we wanted to make all along. Like this is, you know, we, we listen to freaking uh, all day. I listen to Seether and D- Disturbed. And, you know, this is like where I live as a music listener. And we were just mainly nervous that we would lose fans in the transition. I'm sure we did. Um, but I think we gained a lot more fans because I think people just appreciate the fact that we're not trying to regurgitate like we're not trying to make the heaviest record anymore. We're trying to make the record that sounds the most like prison. Well, it's also like you said earlier with the dark sermon releases, it's also a natural progression um, as you've grown older, you know, and also it's natural as an artist, which I think sometimes listeners forget is it is your musical outlet. So if you, change that's because you are happy for it to change it's not because you're trying to sell out it's not because you're trying to do something else and you're not doing it to piss off fans either yeah that's that's one thing that i think fans can rest assured of with our new music like if they hear you know let's say hypothetically we sign to a label this year and then we put out a record and someone's going to be like oh they changed their sound because they signed it's like no dude we wrote that music We've been writing this music for years. Like a label or a manager is not influencing the way we write. The only thing that's the advantage of being independent. The only thing that's influencing our songwriting process is what we're trying to create. And an interesting thing with Still Alive, which some listeners may know the story behind or not. Um, I do. So I, I just want you to tell it for the listeners is the, the interesting artwork on Still Alive and the kind of discharge paper. Uh, what's the story for listeners about that? Yeah, so that was actually a T-shirt idea that I came up with last year, and we had an artist that was supposed to do our artwork um, that had a totally different concept for the cover art, and then he just freaking bailed. Like, he said that he was working on it, and then as it got closer and closer, like, hey, man, we need the album artwork. Hey, man, have you done the album artwork? Like, we need to turn it in if we're going to release this record on time. And then he was like, hey, I haven't done anything. 
And we're like, no way. Like, I can't even not, I, I can't even tell you how hard you just screwed this band. And he didn't, he was supposed to do all our tour merch uh, for those tours and didn't do any of it. And we're like, no way. So I had to design everything last minute. And I pitched the idea of using that discharge paper as album artwork. And the guys were like, mm, I don't know. Uh, mock it up and let's see. And then I spent literally, dude, for the CD. And I don't know if you've seen the album booklet. Yeah. Um, but it is like pages and pages from uh, discharge paperwork. And I actually drafted all of that in a blank Word document. So from top to bottom, every single word and line I made. And then I printed it all out and wrote out all of the – I mean it took – hours and hours like several full-time days to put it together and really the original artwork was um someone like walking away from a hospital wristband um in the halls of a hospital and then i was like well how do we say that without showing it because i can't draw that <laughs> so <laughs> we just wanted to get unique and and show like I've in all my life, I've never seen an album cover like that. No, I haven't either. We just want to do something different. It is very different, and I think that's also an appeal to it. Is it's not a carbon copy of what everyone else does, or the same stuff you see on every other album that's got a demonic creature doing something to you know. It it is unique, and it kind of draws you in because you see that and you go, "What's all this?" And then you're looking at it and you're trying to. Figure it all out. I love it. I think it's great. Heck yeah. Thank you, man. Um, you mentioned in there, you know, a lot of demos are already written. So as a band, Prison, do you feel like you're restricted on when you can release more new music? I mean, it was just last year you released Still Alive. Like, can you release, do you think, something this year? Or is it something that you think you need to let Still Alive breathe for a while before you can release something new it's both yeah we've it, it's so weird to have the opposite problem like so many bands are like "Ugh, we need to write a new record this year and we are like no lie dude in the last so last week i was in the studio tracking vocals for two new songs mm. and then literally since i got back from the studio my guitarist has sent me four new song ideas in the last week <laughs> and and we wrote like probably four fifths of another new song while I was in the studio. And I only went to track vocals. Like we are on such a huge creative kick right now. And we're really finding our sound like, like what prison was always meant to sound like. So now it does become like, what's the soonest we can release new music without <laughs> accidentally drowning out our last release. Like because of the uh, quarantine and coronavirus and all this stuff, we haven't even toured on still alive. Yeah. Like we haven't even had a chance, like all our tours are canceled until further notice. So we legit just put out a record and we can't tour on it and we want to put out new music. And it's like, well, are you sure you should put out new music if you didn't even get to tour on your last release? And we're kind of like, well, depending on how the, how long this quarantine lasts, we might have to. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a double-edged sword, this quarantine for, you know, artists like yourselves is that you miss out on the touring and very little income that that can give you. But then the other positive is you can knuckle down and make more more and more music. 
Oh yeah, we we are turning into writing machines. What about you know the climate for a band now? You know, everyone listening will be aware, and as you said, that's happened for you guys. Uh, everything's getting cancelled, and a lot of people are talking about trying to support bands, uh, no matter their you know level or size. Um, that even some people are doing. You know, GoFundMe's and Patreons mm-hmm. and stuff like this. Uh, f- for you as an artist, how do you feel for your creative outlet and you know putting food on the table? This is all doing to you. Oh, it's it's devastating. Like when it started happening, I was like, "Yeah, but we're gonna be fine." And then slowly, it's like, you know, you see these huge cultural institutions, freaking Live Nation, mm. you know, like in these venues and. You know, Justin Bieber isn't getting paid. What makes what makes me think we're going to get paid? Like uh, it's it is nothing short of devastating. And I think that unfortunately we haven't even begun to see the the long term impact of this. I think a lot of bands are going to break up because of this, um, just because of the the extreme strain it's going to put on. You know, bands are very fragile financial ecosystems. Like we don't literally every band that you love probably makes just enough to do what they do. Mm. So the real people who are making all the money are agents and managers and labels who are just staying home and collecting checks while the band is out there doing the thing. Um, And I know that it takes all types, but now it's like booking agents aren't making money. And if booking agents aren't making money, then maybe they get normal jobs and then there are less booking agents. And then venues are closing because they're not making money from shows to pay rent and then they can't lease the space anymore. And it's like, we don't even understand how, how deep the impact of this will be. And I'm trying not to be all doomsday about it, but I do think that, that we'll see a lot of venues, a lot of venues close. We're going to see a lot of bands break up. We're going to see a lot of uh, people in the music industry quit and get more traditional jobs Mm. because this has really exposed the fragility of the music industry. Like, you know, what the heck happens if your favorite band can't tour for a year? And the answer is they might not tour ever again because they got, they got a job as a, you know, fulfillment specialist at Amazon, you know? Yeah. And it's also, you know, I understand people saying that, um, help out your bands, buy a t-shirt and stuff off their store, which I implore everyone if you can spare, but that's the thing in the current climate where people's, Jobs are in jeopardy. Um, some people just can't even spare that $10, $20 that they used to maybe six months ago could have spared. So the overall effect is everyone is struggling. Yeah, it is. It's kind of difficult to talk about because we don't know. Like tomorrow mm. it could just – they could be like, hey, we figured everything out. But right now it's like, you know, if you're able – financially definitely buy merch definitely and dude stream music mm-hmm. watch music videos like freaking you guys don't even know like we might not make money from that or we might not make a lot but if one of our music videos shoots up to a hundred thousand views or or we hit our monthly listeners climb up like crazy because people are missing us it's like that's the kind of stuff I think what you guys don't realize as listeners and that's myself included is how much bands and artists need a morale boost right now. 
mm-hmm. and to know that they're they're needed and valued and cared for. And you know, if a band stops touring and they see their streaming numbers go down to zero, then they think, well, what's the point? Mm-hmm. But if they stop touring and they see their streaming me- numbers go up and up, and fans are messaging them saying, like, I love you guys, I can't wait to see you when all this is over. Like that's the motivation that creatives need to continue creating. Yeah, exactly. It's it is something that you know. Until you hear that, I don't think a lot of people probably realize that. Um, it's also, um, I'm just every day just perplexed with what we're going through. But the I saw your video that you put up the other day talking about how isolating yourself, while is necessary, can also really impact people's mental health, which is something I don't think people understand. Yeah. It's we get confused. We think that social distancing means that we can't talk to people, and that's false. Uh, you definitely need to talk to people. Like human interaction is what keeps us alive. So just because you can't be in the same room as someone doesn't mean you can't uh, connect with them. And that's what I mean. Like I just want to bring it back to music. Like think about it. If we find out we can't tour, and then we get a ton of merch sales or something and all these people showing their support like just cuz you can't go see your favorite band doesn't mean you can't encourage them through through buying merch or through streaming music or even just sending them a message on social media or posting about them and being like yeah I can't wait to see prison again or whatever like you guys don't know that stuff like that helps because while we are social distancing like I'm not even seeing my band members mm. so seeing stuff like that come in is huge because it motivates us and keeps us focused on like you know, one day we're going to be able to be on the road and be with all our fans again, and that that keeps us going. Well, the other thing it does, not only for a musician but for everyone, is all the you know the anxiety, panic, depression that's going on is scary. You know, I don't know. I haven't seen many reports of what it's like in the states. I do know your thing with toilet paper is the same that's going over here, but. Um, <laughs> We, we've, we've had a thing here where our supermarkets um, are turning into something that you'd see in like Zombieland movie where there's just nothing on the shelves. It's crazy what's actually going on. And then I'm also hearing a lot of people that uh, because of what's happening, that their anxiety is reaching crazy levels where they just feel depressingly unstable. <sighs> I think that not a lot of people are taking into account the mental and emotional toll. Everyone's focused on the financial toll, which I get because that's super immediate. But when you talk about like mass hysteria and like global fear and people panicking and freaking out and feeling hopeless, like if you think that's not going to have a mental and emotional impact on, on who we are, like we're going to be talking about this for the rest of our lives for sure. Mm. It's, it's scary. Um, so the only other thing I really wanted to talk about is, it's kind of a double question. First part of the question I wanted to ask, how do Cope Notes get started? Um, and explain to everyone what Cope Notes is. So you know how it got started because you watched mm-hmm. the TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but long story short, I've been um, involved in the mental health field since 2011. So I went to school for psych and I started doing peer support and um, advocacy and speaking at schools and conferences and prisons and all over the place, just about, um, suicide prevention and healthy, uh, habits in terms of your mental and emotional health. And, um, I think cope notes was just 
I, I was trying to create a scalable way to make a bigger impact. So I was like, man, you know, if I'm on tour and I'm in a city and let's say I'm in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania in the U.S., and there's 350 people there and I say something on stage that helps somebody and then I leave and I don't come back for like eight months. Like what the heck <laughs> is that? You know, that's not sustainable at all. Like I want someone to have something that can support them every day. So um, if you want the actual huge origin story, you should go watch the Ted talk cause it's kind of long, but I think you'll enjoy it. And then uh, basically if you don't know what cope notes is, it's just a, mental health resource that provides daily support via text message. I think it's amazing. Um, and, you know, it's unique in the current, not talking about now with what's going on, but I mean just in current society unto itself because I remember growing up and if you had a problem, you were told to just deal with it, you know, suck it up, deal with it. Um, as my father used to say, eat a bag of concrete and toughen the fuck up. Um, he did. I love that. I have to steal that. He, he used to say it to me all the time. Um, (laughs) eat a bag of concrete (laughs) and toughen the fuck up. Um, what the heck? Yeah. You could, you could pretty much tell he wasn't a very, uh, loving, uh, caring, um, supportive (laughs) man. He's a man's man. Yeah. He's a man's man. Um, but what I'm saying is like, you look at that kind of mentality, um, that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about things. You're not supposed to seek advice or, you know, reach out for help. Um, and then through what you do, not only with your music, but Cope Notes, um, you're opening uh, a new way of people reaching out, a new way of people surviving and a new way of people not feeling alone. Yeah, the what's always bothered me about this type of stuff is that people always say, you know, if you're going through something, reach out. Mm. And it's like, okay, think about every single time in your life that you've been experiencing undue stress or pressure or depression or anxiety or fear or panic or anger or whatever. Think about all those times. Now, how many of those times did you actually reach out to someone or something for help? That's the problem is that most people don't do that, at least not every time. So Cope Notes tries to fill that gap. It's like whether you reach out or not, we're going to be with you every single day, no matter what. So once you make the decision to walk with us, we're going to be more consistent than any friend or family member or, or resource in your life, because we promise, we guarantee that we will touch base with you once a day, whether you tell us you're fine, whether you tell us you're miserable, whether you don't say anything to us for months at a time, no matter what we'll be there. So we can't just wait for people to reach out because most people don't. No. Um, what would you say to someone, you know, what is, you know, instead of saying, like you said, people say, you know, if you're not feeling well, reach out. So what what do you say to people then? Do you literally just say, look to cope notes? Or is there something else that you would say to someone who's um, just struggling? I mean, I think the main flaw is that we we make it someone else's responsibility. Like you could argue that it's someone else's responsibility to reach out. But if you really, if you really love them and you really want to support them, the best thing you could do to support them is for you to reach out. Mm-hmm. Like the the times that have helped me the most are when, you know, in high school, uh, my mental health was actually maybe 
that was one of the most challenging times, high school and college for me. And there would be times when my friends would be like, hey, uh, come over on Wednesday. We're ordering pizza and we're watching Family Feud. And it's like that did more for my mental health than anything because I was isolating myself. I was not communicating with people. Um, I was so deeply depressed and I was in a really dangerous place. And just having people reach out unsolicited did more for me. Like if if that friend would have said, hey, text me if you're ever feeling down, I would have never texted him. Mm. But him actually engaging with me and inviting me places and including me and thinking of me, that's what helped me. Yeah. It, yeah. Everyone listening, take that in because I think that's it says it in, unto itself. Last thing I have to ask before we wrap things up is I've referenced it a few times. You've referenced it a few times. And everyone listening, when this is on the website, underneath our conversation, um, there will be the YouTube click that you can click on and watch the TED Talk. Uh, But how did that talk come about? I know you and I spoke about it before I started recording. Um, But how did it come about? And how was that for you? Well, I've wanted to do a TED Talk since I was like a fetus. <laughs> like I've I've always it's bucket list for me. So I I was filming a documentary in Virginia. I wasn't filming it. I was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other people in the documentary was uh, this guy, Frank, that I just hit it off with. He's he's like old enough to be my grandpa. And if he heard me say that, he would kick my butt because he's like a bodybuilder. Um, but he was telling me he just did his sixth TED Talk, like fifth or sixth. And I was like, what the heck? I've never met anybody who's done a TED Talk, much less more than one. I didn't even know you were allowed. I thought it was like, one, you know, one. yeah, you only get one chance. And uh, he was like, dude, you never know. You should just apply. And I'm like, apply? Like they just do open casting calls for TED And, uh, one day he sent me a link to an application for, um, a TED event in central Florida. And I was like, dude, there's no freaking way they're going to accept me. Like I'm 26 and nobody knows who I am. Like I am not a doctor. I am not famous and I'm covered in tattoos. And he was like, dude, just apply. It's going to take you what? a couple hours to, to write out a summary and a pitch and fill out this application. So just try it. What do you have to lose? So I turned it in and then later I got a call, not later that day. It was like months. I had like almost forgotten about it. I was like, Oh, well, I guess I didn't get it. Then I got a call and they were like, yeah, you are in. And I was like, no way. And they're like, yep. So the next six months are going to be the hardest months of your whole life. <laughs> Cause it's like, so much work. So I literally, uh, Ted is like a part-time job until you, from the time you get greenlit until the time you actually give the talk, you are writing and rehearsing and doing new drafts. So that, that's one of the biggest projects I've ever done. And it's amazing. Um, it's how to grow as a person. It's amazing. After you've listened to this guys, click on the link below. Um, it's about 18 minutes, I think roughly, um, worth every minute. Yes, sir. Um, make sure you give it a go. Um, so Johnny, what we do to wrap things up, some people say this is their favorite part of their conversation, which I think is a bit weird. You know, they, they stick with this just to hear this last part. Um, it's called pick your poison. Now what I do here is I'm going to find out what makes you tick. 
Now I'm going to give you two options, and some are going to be food-based, some are going to be music, and some are going to be movies. And you tell okay. me which is your favorite of the two. Don't have to justify your answer. Some people do, um, and also pre-warning, not guaranteeing they're going to be easy. Okay. Okay. Would you have a pizza or a burger? Ugh, pizza, no freaking question. I had pizza last night, baby. Team pizza for life. Risotto or pasta? Oh, I, I had risotto recently, and it was insanely good. I've only had it that one time. So if it's that good, risotto. Okay. Soft taco or hard taco? Soft taco, not even a competition. <laughs> Um, smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Smooth, you psychopaths. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Neither. <gasps> what do you? I don't. I don't play around with that. You know what? Actually, I'll do. Uh, every once in a while, I have like one of those fake teas that's like raspberry tea or peach tea, like the sweet iced oh, tea at a restaurant tea. or something. So mm -hmm. I'll I'll do those. I'll do like a raspberry iced tea. Okay. But Ch that's not really tea. That's just sugar water. Yeah, but I pretty love much. It. Uh, Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Um, Chinese. I actually don't. I, I, I don't. I'm not very well versed in Indian food. I'd love to try it. Um, well, if you come to when you come to Australia, which I'm saying when because it, it will happen. Um, oh, I'm supposed to be down there later this year. I'm trying to come speak for the Are You OK week thing. Oh, yeah, buddy. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm trying to do a speaking tour down there. We're booking it right now, so I hope it happens. Well, make sure you come to Brisbane. Like, that's where I live. I believe I am. <sighs> yeah, buddy. Um, now, hang on. Sorry, I got excited, sidetracked. You're good. Um, do you want to cook at home or dine out? Oh, I love eating out so much. Like, I love cooking a ton. But eating out is such a wonderful experience, like... I'm big on like atmosphere and architecture and like um, interior design and menu design. And I just love, I love the experience of eating out. What about a new movie? Are you going to make the effort, go to the cinema, or are you going to wait to watch it from the comfort of your couch? I never go to the movies. I It's really fun, but it's also like, Crazy experience. Such a novelty experience for me. Like I prefer, you know what? I'll say watch it at home because I like pausing a movie to talk about the movie during it instead of talking over it. When people talk over a movie, it like blows my mind. Like just for me, it's like just pause it, have the conversation, then press play so you don't miss anything. Yeah, see, I think that's a great answer because I also like watching it at home because my bladder, the older I get, isn't getting very good. So I need Dude, I was just about to say I take a pee break every single movie I see in a theater and I miss half of it. Exactly, and I can't deal with that cuz knowing my luck, the moment I get up from my cinema seat to go to the toilet, I miss that vital part of the storyline. But if it's at oh, home, yeah. if it's at home I can pause it, do what I need to do, maybe get another drink while I'm up and then resume. Yeah, well therein miss. lies your problem, dude. <laughs> you, you empty your tank and then grab something to fill it. <laughs> Got to keep hydrated. Uh, I drink too much uh, cordial, um, so that's my problem. Um, right. Well, you want to spend a day at the beach or do you want to spend a day at the snow? <sighs> that's tough. I love the mountain. I live in – or I love the, the ocean. I live in Florida 
um, and I love being around the water, but I never get to be in snow. So I'll say if it's just one day, I'll take the snow day because it's like such a foreign concept to me. Uh, cat or dog person? Dogs, for yeah. sure. I even say it in the TED Talk, actually. I know. I, I knew that answer was going to be dog. Um, but I'm allergic to cats, too. Really? Oh, yeah. I have a super bad asthma. It's like cats can literally kill me just by existing. Well, I just tell people I'm allergic to cats, but I'm not. It's just my way of saying I don't <laughs> you like cats. You just don't like them. That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> uh, I've got I've got three dogs, so I think it's obvious I like dogs. Um, I love it. Now, Terminator or Predator? I don't know a lot about those franchises. I'll say Predator because, in my opinion, Predator just looks so much sicker. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars, because I don't know crap about Star Trek. And for the record, I don't know much about Star Wars either. <laughs> That's okay. Um, South Park or Simpsons? Um, I think South Park. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, music ones. Marilyn Manson or Rob Zombie? I don't. This is going to make me sound like such a poser. I, I don't know crap about either of them either. Well, so, aesthetically. I'll say... I'll say, oh, I'll say I love Rob Zombie's voice, and I love Marilyn Manson's aesthetic. I'm gonna say, oh, I'm gonna say Marilyn Manson purely because of uh, his stylistic choices, like in music videos, and uh, some of the set design is just like in the costuming. It's it's unreal. So I'm gonna say him, without knowing much about either of their discographies. Suicide Silence or Whitechapel. Okay, this isn't fair because I toured with Suicide <laughs> Silence. <laughs> um, that's really tough. I, I might actually not have an answer for that one because Whitechapel and Suicide Silence came into my life at the exact same time, and I've been listening to them both for the same amount of time. You know what? I have to say Suicide Silence because it, it would be a tie if I didn't know Suicide Silence, but because I do... They they have the edge up over over Whitechapel. I don't really know them, so mm. so I guess suicide. Wow. Um, corn or Limp Biscuit? Oh, corn. Limp Biscuit is Limp Biscuit is wonderful if you take all of the parts. If <laughs> Limp Biscuit <laughs> is a well intentioned mess. That I love, but I th- I don't know how to word it. I'll, I'll say corn, but but know that I still listen to Limp Biscuit. Well, I think the thing is, if you took Fred Durst out of Limp Biscuit, would Limp Biscuit be more, you know, a better answer? Like, if Fred Durst wasn't part of that band, would people be okay with that band? Dude, I think yes, but I also think Fred Durst is what makes. Limp Biscuit, Limp Biscuit too. So it's like such a double-edged sword. Like the moment you remove him, you you may have made a, a more palatable band, but you made a different band. So it's like so hard. It is also that band that, you know, if you're a fan of, you probably also like the fact that nobody likes it or says they don't like <laughs> yeah. it. Um, it's you're also so right. It's also a band that, if anyone says they can't stand Limp Bizkit and then you put on maybe Nookie, Faith, there's probably certain songs that, yeah, everyone secretly loves also. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're not fooling anybody. 
Um, cannibal Corpse or Black Dahlia Murder? Oh, well, I'm from Tampa, so I'm supposed to say Cannibal Corpse, but I actually listened to Black Dahlia way more than Cannibal. So um, I'm going to say Team Black Dahlia. Okay, last music one, Slayer or Pantera? I never really listened to either of them, but I'm going to say Pantera because they have some like slower riffs from what I can tell, and Slayer has some faster riffs, and I, I kind of prefer the slower, groovier ones. Now, we've got the last couple left. Uh, you're playing a show. Do you want stage dives going on or mic grabs? Nobody grabs my mic. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little germaphobic still. That's one of my remnants of my OCD. So um, I'm going to say stage dives. Come up on the stage all you want. Jump off all you want. Just please don't, especially with all this COVID-19 stuff going around, <laughs> just don't freaking grab my microphone. <laughs> Um, you go to a show, do you watch it from the pit or by the sound desk? Oh, I, I'm always in the back, always next to the sound booth. I, I want to be able to see everything and I want to be able to hear everything. So when I go to a show, I go purely to enjoy it. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not there to, to socialize necessarily. I'm not there to, to get in the mosh pit. I am there to as a music fan to watch and listen and appreciate uh, without having to worry about being in somebody's way or bumping into anybody. I just want to like comprehend the concert, you know? Yes. I am identical unless I was 16. Then it was a little bit different. Yeah. (laughs) It was different when I was younger for sure. Um, Now, second last one, I know they need to go hand in hand for kind of one to exist with the other, but would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record for the rest of your life? Oh, it's tough. Uh, you know what? I love, I think if the question was perform or record, it would be tougher. But I think, I think touring is places such a tremendous uh, financial and mental and emotional strain on somebody that that it's a no-brainer there. I love touring so much, but you know, in ten years, I, I want to have a kid or something. I want to be able to be. I want to. I want to be a good dad. So at a certain point, like I can record all the music I want in a home studio or like in a local studio, and then come home and like help my kid with his homework. So I, I think if it was only about me, I could just tour forever. But I think. The best part about life is that it doesn't have to be all about me. So I, I would say record. And last one, I'm going to give you your all-time favorite album. Do you want it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Um, it. I guess it would have to be on my phone because I literally, I legit, I'm not even joking. I do not. Ha- my computer does not have a CD slot, and um. And I don't have a record player, so it's got to be on my phone. I, I, I need to work out to it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, Johnny, we have gone crazy over time, but I'm really grateful we have because that was worth every second, every minute. Um, really enjoyable, relaxed uh, conversation. I felt like I knew you. Uh, felt like I was hanging out with you. Um, you're a dude. Um, I really appreciate you as a person for what you do creatively, but also what you do with Cope Notes and your TED Talk and stuff like that. So this meant a lot to me personally. 
invaluable to me as a fan also. Heck yeah, that's awesome. I hope I hope everyone listening felt this way too. I'm literally in my bedroom laying on the carpet with a handheld microphone. So like <laughs> it's you know, this is we literally are hanging out. I'm like rolling around. This is awesome. I hope everybody feels just as included. Um thank you, man. Again, thank you. Absolutely, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Mental illness is not a game. There are no winners.
So that was my chat with Johnny of Prison. And at the end there, you heard Prison's tracks Still Alive and Mental Illness. Both of those feature on the band's most recent album, Still Alive. And the last track you heard there was by Dark Sermon. And that track is called The Eyeless Needle, which is from their album, The Oracle. Now's the moment I'm going to spark that bit inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So if you enjoyed the conversation, if you enjoyed the music at the end there, make sure you get online and stream or download the music. If you've got some money you can spare, jump onto eBay, jump onto the band's web store, buy some physical editions of their music, or grab some merch. These are the essential ways you can support bands nowadays, especially when bands can't tour. I also need to take this moment to thank Johnny again. Thank you so very, very much, dude. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Look forward to touching base with you soon and doing a part two. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 111 done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget... You can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.